Good morning to all of you. It is really nice to be here. Uh, Peggy and I have uh, been here for the whole morning, and I forget where Peggy's sitting. But, oh yeah, she was on this side at the 9 o'clock service. Apparently, this is the selection for the 11. <laughs> we, uh, we shift to get a different point of view. And, uh, all right, good to know. The, uh, um, I've been a part of the City Light world for the whole time. Five years ago when it started, Peggy and I were with Chris and Gavin. Peggy and I had attended Christ Community Church for around 18 years, and then Gavin was the college pastor at Christ Community at that time. And so Gavin and Chris made an appointment and came over to our house and sat down with Peggy and I and said, come help us, we need old people. So I said, okay. So I'm not sure how you got into the City Light world, but we got in because we're old. And uh, that was our ticket. And so we've been with them from the beginning, and that's where I met uh, Eric, that's where I met Doug, and I love your pastors, and I love their heart, I love their vision, I love what you're doing here, and I'm just thankful to be a part of this moment with you. I'm also thankful that you have received our daughter, Carrie, uh, who has uh, worked as an international worker in Africa. And so that's Peggy's my claim to fame as we're Carrie's mom and dad. But thank you for being kind to her. You have your Bibles, and you can open uh, to John 11. That is where we're going to be, the passage that uh, Eric read this morning. John 11. John 11 is a chapter that is about Jesus, and it is about a man named Lazarus and a conversation that Jesus had with Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha. Now, most of John's Gospels center on Jesus, who he is, what he did, what he said. But in addition to Jesus, there are three people whose names appear in the Gospel of John more than any others, and those people those three individuals are the Apostle Peter, John the Baptist, and Lazarus. So Lazarus, except for John the Baptist and Peter, his name appears in chapter 11 and 12 more than any other individual in the Gospel of John. And so that makes what happens to Lazarus pretty significant when you think of all the things that John could have written. Now, you may have missed this when Eric read it, but in verse 11, Jesus refers to Lazarus as our friend. He said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go and awaken him. Now, friend is a significant word in the Bible because until now, there's only three individuals in the entire Bible who have been referred to as God's friend. And those three individuals were Abraham and Job and Moses. So apparently it's a very special word that signifies a very special relationship. And what's so interesting is that in the final chapters of the Gospel of John, Jesus stops calling the disciples servants. And he begins calling the disciples his friends. And so it's a clear sign that Jesus is cultivating a closer relationship with his own twelve. And today, Jesus wants to cultivate a closer relationship with us. So what I'm promising you this morning is that if you'll open your heart, your ears, your eyes, your soul, the Jesus that had a conversation with Mary and Martha is the same Jesus that's going to have a conversation with us. And what he said to them is what I want us to hear and apply to our own lives today. 
This morning, I want to share with you three things that I have discovered that you can confidently believe when Jesus is your friend. First, when Jesus is your friend, he's never too late. He's never too late. In the opening verses of John 11, there are two things that stand out. Number one, Lazarus, a man Jesus loved, was very sick. And number two, upon learning of his condition, Jesus did not immediately respond. Now, I want you to put yourself in Mary and Martha's sandals for just a minute. They knew Jesus loved Lazarus, and they specifically had asked him to come and come now. Furthermore, they knew that he was able to heal the eyes of the blind and open the, open the eyes of the blind, so they felt very confident that if we can just get him here, that he's going to be able to deal with this simple illness of their brother. Nevertheless, it is striking that Jesus is in no hurry to get there. He, he just dilly-dallies around for two more days. And in addition, for waiting for two more days, when he finally revealed that Lazarus was dead, he said to his disciples, you know, I think for your sake it's really good that I wasn't there. I think it's a good thing that I wasn't there because there's something that I want you to believe. Now, since we have a different vantage point and we know how the story ended, we are fully aware that Jesus knew all along what he was doing. But I want to impress upon you is that Mary and Martha were totally confused at this juncture. They had no idea what he was doing, and what they thought was going to happen is not what happened. Now, I have always had a cell phone, but for many years, I had an old flip phone that had no texting with it. And over time, you know, people kind of got on me about this, Eric, and, and they wanted me, you know, what's up with this flip phone? And I was just never very motivated to change, partly because my old flip phone was the kind our Lord used, and uh, I didn't see any reason to change. It was good enough for him. And secondly, I just didn't see the need. Well, one Sunday morning, I know you weren't there, but one Sunday morning, Gavin preached a sermon at City Light, Midtown, on cell phones. And he told everybody from the front that the reason God made cell phones was for the purpose of texting people. That is the reason God made cell phones. Has nothing to do with calling them. Has nothing to do with voice-to-voice conversations. Nothing to have a dialogue. That isn't the reason God made cell phones at all. He said the reason God made cell phones is so you could text somebody. They're texting machines. Well, upon learning this divine revelation, I said, okay, I'm going to go out and get myself a new phone that has texting. And as you can imagine, two of the people that I wanted to text right away were Chris and Gavin. So I texted Chris, and when I texted Chris, his reply back to me was super positive and super encouraging. Paul, great job. Way to go. Hashtag total win. Hashtag so much fun. I am thrilled. I mean, I'm so encouraged. I mean, this is great. I love this. This is really cool. So then I proceed to text Gavin, and his reply was, ladies and gentlemen, hell has now frozen over. (laughs) So I texted back, I thought you would be happy for me. And he texted back, welcome to 2002. (laughs) Not 
what I thought was going to happen. Listen to me. Two days late. Being two days late. Being two days late is not what Mary and Martha thought was going to happen. In fact, they both said, Lord, you know, if you'd only been here, our brother wouldn't have died. But now it's too late. Now, what were these women forgetting? The answer is God's divine providence. Mary and Martha thought he was late, but Jesus thought he was right on time. Mary and Martha saw an urgent need, but Jesus saw a providential moment. To Jesus, Lazarus' illness was more than an illness. It was providential. And the Gospel of John records numerous such encounters. Think back through the sermons you've heard in the Gospel of John. Nathaniel in chapter 1. The woman at the well in John 4. The man born blind in John 9. You're going to come up on Peter before he denied Jesus in John 13. And then Peter after the resurrection in John 21. And of course Lazarus here in John 11, just to name a few. My friends... Even though Mary and Martha didn't understand what was happening, Jesus wasn't in a hurry because he knew that through Lazarus' illness, many people would see the power of God and believe in him. Now, this story reminds us that we are living our lives in someone else's universe. And specifically, it reminds us that the same God who was behind Lazarus' illness is behind what's happening in your life today. Alan Redpath, the renowned British evangelist, wrote, There is no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until, first of all, It goes past God and past Christ right through to me. If it has come that far, it has come with a great purpose, which I may not understand at the moment. We're living our lives in someone else's universe and providentially mixed with God's friendship is his lordship. My father's way may twist and turn, my heart may throb and ache, but in my soul I'm glad to know he maketh no mistake. My cherished plans may go astray, my hopes may fade away, but still I'll trust my Lord to lead, for he doth know the way. Though night be dark and it may seem that day will never break, I'll pin my faith, my all in him, he maketh no mistake." There's so much now I cannot see, my eyesight's far too dim, but come what may, I'll simply trust and leave it all to him. For by and by the mist will lift, and plain it all he'll make, through all the way, though dark to me, he made not one mistake. When Jesus is your friend, he always knows what he's doing. He's never too late. He maketh no mistakes. Second, when Jesus is your friend, you never weep alone. Now, everyone has a breaking point. And when Lazarus died, Mary and Martha found theirs. 
The disappointment from Jesus not being there, coupled with the sadness of their brother's death, left them feeling overwhelmed. And the natural result was tears. So they wept. And then their friends wept. And two times the text says that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit, and as a result, Jesus wept. Now, while their death, we would all say, is arguably the greatest and ultimate loss, we all know there's other kinds of loss and sadness. There's the loss of a dream, loss of a friendship, loss of a marriage, loss of a job, loss of a job offer, loss of a house. There's sadness when someone loses their reputation or their health or loses their savings or their business. To be sure, there are some days that are really filled with tears. But when Jesus is your friend, oh, you may weep. We may weep, but we never weep alone. Now, the reason, the simple reason that Jesus' tears are so powerful is that Jesus was a man, a man of sorrow. He was a man that was acquainted with grief. And what that means is that Jesus has the ability to identify at the heart level with the sorrows of other people. Now, other people don't have the capacity to do this to the degree that Jesus does. But Jesus has the capacity to identify at the heart level with what we're feeling. He relates to feeling hurt because he was wounded. And he relates to feeling left out because he was rejected. And he relates to feeling oppressed because he was oppressed. Trust me, not only did Jesus understand how Mary and Martha felt, he understands how you and I feel today. And I, am, I do not have the capacity to impress this upon you to the degree that I want to impress this upon you. But I'm standing here in front of you today on the authority of the Word of God that says when Jesus wept, it meant he understood what they were feeling. And what I'm saying to you as clearly as I possibly can is that whatever you have been going through, Whatever you have been feeling, whatever you've been facing, whatever you've been struggling with, or whatever has brought sadness into your life, or has discouraged you, or frustrated you, or disappointed you, whatever that is, he knows how you feel. Now, other people might not know exactly how you feel, no matter how, you, how hard you uh, uh, try to tell them how you feel. But you don't have to inform Jesus. Jesus knows exactly how we feel. He understands, he relates, he identifies, he knows the hurt. Peggy and I actually have two daughters who don't live nearby. So we can identify with parents whose children live far away. In fact, several years ago, at the very same time, our one daughter lived in Africa and our other daughter lived in China. We're still not exactly sure how that happened because the truth is Peggy just wanted God to send me somewhere. So, But in our family, what I'm telling you is that in our family, we know by experience what it feels like to say goodbye at the airport. We know that feeling. And so does Jesus who bears our griefs and carries our sorrows. A.B. Simpson used to tell the story about a mother a mother who sent her son to an English boarding school that was very far away from her home. 
But later, she was very troubled when she found out that the school had a rule, and the rule was that the school would only permit her to visit her son once every two weeks. Well, this was more than she could stand, more than she could bear. And so, unknown to her son and unknown to, her teach, to his teachers, she rented a little attic apartment overlooking the school. And while her son never knew, she would sit in the upper room with her eyes on her little boy as he played in the schoolyard or studied in the classroom. He could not see her, but if he got hurt or cried or called her name or needed her for a moment, she was within his reach, and as a result, he was never really alone. So in the words of the famous gospel hymn, why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, a constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. When Jesus is your friend, he knows what you're feeling. And we may weep. But we never, we never weep alone. And finally, when Jesus is your friend, there's hope for any situation. If a car can run out of gas, a person can run out of hope. And that's what happened to Mary and Martha. Let me paraphrase this conversation. Martha said, Lord, he died four days ago, and bottom line, there's no hope now. Jesus said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, there's still hope. Your brother's going to rise again. And Martha said, well, yeah, of course, he's going to rise on the last day. And Jesus said, wait a minute, the resurrection is not a day. The resurrection is a person. The resurrection is not a day in the future. The resurrection is me. I am the resurrection and the life. Just because he's dead doesn't mean that there's no hope. And, uh, well, I'll prove it. Just watch. So Jesus said, where have you laid him? So they showed him. And then Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha said, Lord, this is not a good idea for many reasons. But Jesus said, Martha, hey, you just believe. You just believe. I told you. You believe and you're going to see the power of God. So they took away the stone, Jesus prayed, and then by name, Jesus called Lazarus to come out, and those who saw believed. So there were actually two miracles on that day. A dead man came alive, and unbelievers were converted. Death became life. One of the most moving stories I've ever read um, happened years ago. It's it's told in a book called Fresh Power by Pastor Jim Cimbala, who's the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle. He tells the story of David Berkowitz. Mainly the old-timers are going to remember this story. But he is the infamous son of Sam from the New York City murders in 1977. In 1953, Berkowitz was adopted by practicing Jewish parents And as a result, he knew virtually nothing about Jesus. As a young adult, his crimes began as random acts of violence. He tossed big rocks off overpasses into traffic. He set 2,000 fires, which he logged in a journal. He got involved in a satanic cult, and he prayed to demons 
to guide his murders. After his arrest, he, put a plea, uh, he pleaded guilty to killing five women, one man, wounding many others, and was sentenced to over 300 years in prison. In 1979, an inmate slit his throat, and the doctor said, we, we have no idea how he even lived. Eight years later, he was moved to the Sullivan Correctional Facility. There, an inmate named Ricky Lopez approached him and said, David, Jesus loves you and still has a purpose for your life. Berkowitz laughed and said, you don't know who you're talking to. There's no hope for me. There is no one could love someone who has committed such horrible crimes that I've committed. Ricky gave him a Bible and suggested that he start with the book of Psalms. David's turning point came when he read Psalm 118, verse 5, which reads, Out of my distress, I called to the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. Soon after, he knelt by his bunk and asked Jesus to be his Savior. And today, Berkowitz is not only a follower of Jesus, he is a chaplain at the Sullivan Correctional Facility. Symbola writes, David has now spent half his life behind bars. He will never be paroled. In fact, he has never asked me or any other minister to plead for his release. He knows his crimes were so serious that he deserved to be locked up for life, and he says the prison is now his God-ordained sphere of ministry. To leave this setting, he says, would be to run from the call of God on his life. There is plenty to do here. Berkowitz was dead and by the grace of God was made alive. Lazarus was dead and by the grace of God was made alive. And these stories and thousands of others throughout history are intended to point our attention to Jesus because Jesus was dead. Jesus died and on the third day was made alive. And the foundational message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the dead are made alive. That's the message. That's what we believe. That's what we give testimony to. It isn't that we're better people. It isn't that we just, you know, have a little better outlook on life or we have a positive mental attitude. The dead are made alive. Which brings us to the same question that Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe this? Jesus is inviting us to believe that today is the day that in this room, amongst us, someone who's dead can hear his voice and be made alive. In closing, I want to ask you a, a simple question. How many people thought there was any hope for Berkowitz? I mean, really. How many people thought it was possible for a man who repeatedly destroyed property, set fires, prayed to demons, murdered people, would end up serving God as a prison chaplain? How many? Well, I'll tell you how many. The same number of people who thought there was any hope for Lazarus. The same number of people who thought it was possible for a man who had been dead for four days to hear his name and come out of a tomb. Nobody. Nobody thought it was possible. Now, I, I mean no disrespect by this, but I'm just telling you personally and candidly, 
I have been to funerals, and so have you. And I have stood right next to the coffin and had conversations with the family members, and so have you. And I know that the dead person could not hear my voice. But men and women, the voice that Lazarus heard from the grave was another voice. And the voice that David Berkowitz heard in prison was another voice. It wasn't a human voice, it was the voice of Jesus, and it's that voice that is speaking to us right now. So it really doesn't matter if this morning you can hear my voice. What really matters today is can you hear his voice? It is the voice of Jesus that's having the conversation with you right now. It's not me, it's his voice. Can you hear his voice? His voice is saying there's hope. His voice is saying there's hope for any situation, not me. I'm not saying that to you. It's the voice of Jesus is saying there's hope. I don't care what you're facing. I don't care how bad it looks. I don't care how dead it feels. Jesus is saying there's hope for any situation. He can raise the physical, physically dead and the spiritually dead. He can love any sinner and he can pardon any sin. He can mend any relationship. There's hope because he can save any marriage. There's hope because he can heal any illness and break any addiction. He can give hope to the hopeless. Can you hear his voice? That's our question. I'm asking you to open the ears of your heart and say, Lord, I'm I'm listening. Speak to me. Because he's trying to have a conversation with you. And he's been trying to have that conversation with you perhaps for some time. But today now, I'm praying that it's crystal clear that his voice has the power to penetrate the darkest of situations and give people hope when Jesus is your friend. There is hope for any situation. Well, it's time to do some business with God. This is not a time where we need more information or more stories. We've had enough of that. It's time to do business with God now, people. All of us together. Now, I don't think I'm here by accident. I don't think you're here by accident. I think we're all here today for a reason. It's a providential reason. It's a divine appointment. And you know in your heart what God's voice has been saying to you this morning. You know. You know. You know where you're confused. You know what you're going through. You know what you don't understand. You know what doesn't make sense. You know where you feel lonely. You know where you're discouraged. You know. You know. But the good news this morning is so does Jesus. He knows. He reads your heart. And he's the one who initiated this appointment for right now with him and you just the two of you. He's the one that's drawing closer to you closer to himself. So I'm asking you to draw near to him as he draws near to you. And I'm asking you to surrender your intellect and your emotions. I'm asking you to do business with God. To give up trying to make sense of it. And believe. I'm asking you to trust Jesus as your friend. And your Lord and your hope. Now, we're not in a hurry. We've got the time. So for the next 60 seconds, we're not going to make a sound. There's not going to be any music. Nobody's going to be moving around. In the stillness of this moment, we're all going to do business with God. And I'm asking you to quietly bow your heads right now and seek his face. Let's go to God.
Lord Jesus, we believe that you're our Savior and our friend. We believe that you are behind everything that's happening in our life. We believe that you know how we feel. We believe that you are our only hope. Thank you for drawing closer to each of us this morning. Thank you for being our loving and faithful friend. In your name we pray. Amen.